Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers and the roads they traveled to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today, we talk to Andy Lazzarini, class of 2013, law student and criminal law clerk. We're going to hear about what it was like to be a Division I NCAA athlete and what it's like to be in law school and how she's preparing for the bar exam to be a future criminal defense lawyer. Here we go. Today's guest is Andy Lazzarini from the class of 2013. Andy, tell us what you do. Hi, Mr. Turnbaugh. Um, So right now I am currently in um, my last semester of law school at UIC John Marshall Law School downtown on State Street. Um, I will be sitting for the bar in July, um, and I'm currently a clerk for Prusak Law Group downtown um, on Van Buren, and they are a criminal um, defense uh, private boutique firm. It's run by two women, Shelby Prusak and Tracy Harkins. And um, I also participate on the um, trial competition team at my school, too. Wow. All right. So there's a lot to kind of unpack <laughs> uh, with this. This will be fun. So let's start with um, once you left West Chicago, you were also like a, a varsity athlete. I believe you were a goalie on the soccer team. Kind of tell us about your path from high school to then uh, to college and then to how you got into law. Yeah. So I wasn't a goalie. Um, I was the, the opposite forward. So I, <laughs> okay, so my memory is terrible. Yeah, no, I think you just might've flip-flopped him, but <laughs> so yeah, I was, um, a forward at the, on the varsity team. Um, Cesar Gomez is one of the greatest coaches ever. He still coaches at West Chicago. I owe a lot to that man. He made me a, he's a big part of the person that I am today, not just the soccer player, but a whole, a whole individual as well. Um, but yeah, so after um, West Chicago, I went and played um, Division One, humble brag, uh, Division One soccer wow. at um, IPFW, which is Indiana Purdue in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Let's continue with the humble brag then. Uh, <laughs> what's it like to be a Division One uh, athlete? Like, where are the places that you traveled and all that? So it was really cool because um, our conference um, at the time, since, since I've graduated, they switched conferences. But when I was there, um, we were a part of the Summit League and the Summit League um, had Western Illinois. Um, they had North Dakota and South Dakota State, um, Denver University, um, a couple Indiana schools. So that wasn't too far of a travel. Um, I'm, tr- I'm blanking on a few. Oh, um, Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and, uh, also Oral Roberts, um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So it was kind of a completely spread out all over the country type of conference. So, I mean, every year conference games, we were traveling either all the way West to Denver and middle America to Tulsa or to Omaha, um, or we were staying home and staying in Indiana or going to Western Illinois. So it was really cool. And I'd never been to the Dakotas and nor did I think that I would ever have a reason to go to the Dakotas. So kind of cool that we got to see that, but, um, yeah. And I got to play teams like, I mean, we were the, at the division one level. So it was, we got to play teams like Michigan state, we played against Illinois State, um, really high caliber competition, which was just awesome. How what I've always thought how difficult it must be to balance your school and travel when you went to all these places, like leaving Indiana to go to Denver or going to Oklahoma and all of that. What was that like to kind of plan out your uh, your schedule? 
Yeah, that's a good question because um, I we like we would have. T- I always say this is the joke that I always say is they call you a student athlete, but in reality you're an athlete student because you miss class for games. You don't miss games for class. So the athlete part should probably go first. <laughs> and I mean, it was it was crazy because you always had to like get permission from your professors. Some professors like there was always the politics between like athletics and academia where some very diehard academics would kind of have a problem if you were missing class and kind of wouldn't necessarily, then like it would, you'd have to get athletic directors involved and stuff like that because they wouldn't what's adapt to your schedule for you or they weren't as understanding. Um, some professors were very understanding. Um, they'd just be like, okay, get it done early or you can do it when you get back. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were times I remember we took a sleeper bus one time it was me and like 18 of my teammates and our coaches and all of us were in one of those sleeper vans where or sleeper buses where it's like literally three bunk beds on top of one another and they're like coffins and we're all like doing homework and we're traveling like on bus from fort wayne indiana to like the dakotas and so that's like a 14 hour drive. I think we drove through the night and girls were up doing homework, taking tests. The, the crazy thing is now that you can take like quizzes and stuff remotely. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, definitely an exciting time in my life. <laughs> so, so what did you study at, at, at the university then? So I was um, a public policy major and I, um, I centralized in criminal justice and I also minored um, in psychology as well. So what were some of the classes that you took in public policy? So a lot of it was like poli sci classes. Um, We took a lot of, um, I took, we had a really cool professor. She was um, more on the liberal side, which was interesting for being like in Indiana too. You don't get a lot of that kind of uh, mindset, but she had a class. I remember one of my favorite classes was called um, Criminality and Drugs. And so it kind of mixed um, drug use and criminality and how like, because I was also a psychology major, it was kind of a mix of like both public policy as well as psychology. Um, So that was really interesting. Um, Some other classes, a lot of poli sci classes um, and uh, like abnormal psych classes, that kind of stuff. So you graduate with uh, a degree in public policy mm-hmm. and then psychology when did you um when did you decide that like law is where you wanted to then uh, get into I kind of always had an idea like it kind of was always in the back of my brain like I'll go, may, probably go to law school after college T- to be honest when talking about the soccer thing um it was so funny because being a, a student athlete um at the division one level you get a lot of like NCAA funding and Um, you get a lot of like programs and stuff. And so one of the programs that they brought in was um, life after sports. And so they had sports psychologists come in and kind of talk to us about the transition of going from um, being an athlete to not. And at the time, I mean, you're what, like 20, 21 years old, you're kind you kind of laugh it off. It's something that your coaches tell you, you have to go to, and you just sit there with your friends and you're like, yeah, sure. And then you graduate and you really have like soccer's gone, school's gone. And you're like, wait, what do I do now? Like, who am I? What what kind of things do I do? So um, I took a year off between undergrad and um, law school and kind of um, sat with the idea. Um, I was like, do I really want to go to law school? Let me, I have to take the LSAT. I have to research schools and all of that kind of stuff. And being a student athlete, I would have had to sit for the LSAT during my last 
season. Um, so I kind of decided to take a gap year instead to kind of decide if it was something that I really wanted um, and took the LSAT, applied to schools um, and decided, yeah, like this was an, I was presented an opportunity and I was like, you know, the opportunities here, I'm going to stop second guessing it. I've, it's been something I've been thinking about for a long time and somebody's reaching a handout, so I might as well grab it. Yeah. That's so interesting though, what you said about the psychology of what to do when you can't play the thing that you've loved for so many years mm -hmm. anymore, at least on that super competitive level, right? Like it's not like you could scratch the same itch of comp competition with a pickup league, you know, at the park district from what you were still playing. And the idea that you have to kind of confront that disappointment or at least work your way through those feelings. Was that, is that accurate to kind of say like what that, um, what that uh, program was like that oh, you just yeah. described? Absolutely. Spot on. Um, it's basically, I mean, for lack of a better word and not to sound so dramatic, but it's an identity crisis. Like, has to be. Absolutely. yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go from every single day, every day being planned and not only just that, but you have so many resources at your disposal. You have not only just your athletic trainers, if you have an ache or a pain, you can just go and get it looked at. I had a chiropractor that was on campus that was completely free to us because we were athletes. And it's those kinds of things that you're just so used to that being your regular life that you kind of have to grapple with the reality that this isn't reality for everybody and it's not going to be forever. And I kind of personally, from my perspective, didn't take the actual time to kind of come to terms with that new reality. I kind of just like crash landed into it. And I was like, oh no, like, what am I going to do next? And so that's where the gap year came in. And it was nice that I was able to kind of like live with my parents. I, I was a nanny. Um, I was a server at a restaurant while studying for the LSAT. And then eventually I ended up getting a job with a liquor distribution company for a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, you kind of try and do all these different things and you're like, but soccer was the one thing that like kind of glued my identity to me. So I was kind of going through this thing like, okay, well, like, who am I going to be now as an adult? I'm not Andy, the soccer player anymore. I would walk into a room and be like, hi, I'm Andy. Yeah, I play soccer. And then you would go down that that entire wormhole of like, that's who I am. And then when that's taken away, it's like, oh, okay, well, I need to pick a new thing. And I, I picked law as that thing. And it was kind of funny because um, that we're kind of getting to that. My personal statement, you have to write a personal statement when you apply for law school, which is basically like a, here's why you should accept me to your school essay. <laughs> and I basically wrote about that. I was like, I've been a competitor my whole life on the soccer field. And kind of now I'm hoping to translate that character of mine into the courtroom. And, and, and just to, you know, to, to kind of confront that vulnerability of that, that you have to give up this part of your life and transition into that, that new space. Uh, not everyone's ready to kind of make that leap or at least give it the emotional bandwidth uh, that it requires. Yeah. Just, it reminds me, there was a, an amazing um, series on HBO uh, and it kind of had an episode. Well, I'm trying to remember it was about football, but they were talking about, football players when they left the game and how many of them experience this kind of, for lack of a better word, depression mm -hmm. because they do, they, they don't have 
it, it had nothing to do with the lack of money or resources. It was about not having the camaraderie and and being with a group of individuals to seek a common goal. And it really makes you think of like how much we're wired for that kind of um, community building activity, if it whether it comes through sport or something else that we have that. So it's 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 fascinating. You sit for the LSAT. Can you explain like what what's it like preparing even for that? Yeah. So I mean, there's definitely multiple ways you can prepare for it. I ended up um, taking a class. So it was like me and 10 other students at night, um, like six to nine once a week with like this uh, retired attorney who now teaches kids how to take the LSAT. And it's run through Kaplan. Um, and they basically just, um, if you've ever taken like an ACT class, it's like standard, any kind of standardized test. There's a certain way they ask the questions and they kind of introduce you to how the questions are being asked. Um, so a lot of it is like reading comprehension. They'll give you a page worth of a narrative and then they ask, ask you six questions about it. Um, another section was called um, logic games and logic games is like, oh, and, and I, I hope that I kind of explain this well, but then logic games was my worst subject on the LSAT, but it's basically like, okay, um, like Peter, Paul, and Mary are going to uh, make t-shirts and something like you have to, oh, I'm doing such a bad job at explaining this, but this is I think I got, I think I got, it seems like if I'm like, I would imagine that law requires a level of making really good comparisons and analogies, right? So like the logic mm -hmm. of the analogies, is that, would that be kind of what that section was like? Yeah. And it was, and they call it logic games. So it's like basically a game where you have to like figure out, they give you like kind of the pieces to the puzzle, kind of like Sudoku, I guess would be the, ah, the best okay. analogy. And then you kind of have to figure out, like they give you the platform. You kind of have to put the rest of the puzzle together. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That sounds, I can see how that'd be totally intimidating. It's yeah, like, yeah. Because like, either you see it right away, and then if you don't see it, I would be like, you probably just kind of like, oh no. Right, and then the oh. time's turning, and you, yeah, you go down the panicking, yeah. <laughs> Why did you choose UIC? Um, so I really wanted to be downtown. Um, kind of living downtown was always a dream of mine, and um, especially with the familiarity of like having family and friends close by, I knew, like you said, with the whole camaraderie thing, um, with athletes kind of coming out, especially team sport athletes and not really having that team anymore. I knew if I were to go away to school and not know anybody, um, that it would have kind of made my, um, my law school experience even more challenging than law school already is. So I knew that I wanted to be close to home, close to family, close to friends that were still here and kind of know my environment already a little bit because rather than move to a new environment and learn a new skill and all new material, it kind of seemed like a lot at once. Um, so I always, I wanted to be at, uh, John Marshall and, or well, one of the Chicago schools and John Marshall actually offered me a scholarship. So they made yeah. my decision kind of for me. Yeah. Congrats on that. That's amazing. Thank so, you. So, okay. You, so you accepted John Marshall. And so before you figured out the, the area of law you wanted to study, what's it like choosing the first is it a set curriculum for the first year law student for everyone or are, are you already able to kind of choose which area you're going into? Yeah. So you can't choose, you can't even choose your own schedule. So they give you um, your entire schedule and your, 
it's called, they call it, they section you off. Um, and so you're with the same basically 90 to 100 kid or uh, adults, people <laughs> um, for your entire year. So they call it um, the way that it's like um, the vernacular is 1L year. They So you're a 1L instead of like freshman, sophomore, junior. Mm-hmm. Um, your first year, you're a 1L. Your second year, you're a 2L. And your 3L, you're a or your third year, your 3L. And so your 1L year is completely made and set for you. Your professors are set. You're in a, you're, so I was in section three. I had 90 of the same people in every single one of my classes. So we took, um, for instance, and that's like, you take all of your bar courses. So these are the um, areas of law that will be tested on the bar. Um, And that would be, so like torts is one, which is a, a lot of like personal injury stuff. Um, I never knew what torts was until I went to law school. <laughs> I thought it was a dessert. Um, yeah, pretty close. <laughs> right. And then you, um, you take property law and you take contracts law. Um, and then your second semester, we had constitutional law, criminal law. Um, oh, uh, I'm blanking. Um, oh, contracts too. Um, and then your legal writing courses you take as well. So, Early on now, because they don't like you always hear about when people get into programs that there are like weed out classes like are can you make it like I think for a lot of uh, students that want to go into biology or, or something like they say it's oh, it's organic chemistry is always like yep. really tough. Are, is there is there a similar type of class like that in law school? They're like, do you have the chops? You'll make you'll be able to make it through this class or is it all? pretty much equally miserably uh, difficult for all the classes. That's actually interesting that you asked that. So, I mean, the classes I would say, I mean, it kind of depends on who you are. Like I have one of my best friends in law school. She loves property law and anything that has to do with property law. I'm like, oh no, please get that away from me. And she hates criminal law. So, and I love criminal law. So it just, it's kind of a preference when it comes to what courses are going to be, or I guess what subject matter is going to be interesting to you that you kind of have the wherewithal to pay attention enough. Um, But the weeding out part is actually done um, deliberately in law school. So there is a thing called the curve. um, And basically in each class, your 1L year, 10% of you must fail. Wow. Yeah. And so it is, it really is um, like survival of the fittest. So the bottom 10% of each class, they um, get an F and that's all up to the professor's discretion. And then at the end of the semester, um, 10% of at least 10% um, is, I think it's 10 to 15% if I'm not mistaken. Um, But at least 10% have to um, fail out. So you go to your first year of law school and they basically tell you to kick rocks. Wow. So just to be clear, that's only in the one year, not in, in the subsequent years as well, or is it, is it, or is it every year? Um, so that is, that is specifically in the one year. And then there wow. is a curve for your second year, but it is lighter. Um, and like, it's more forgiving in that sense. And then any class that has 60 or more people, the curve two must apply. So the curves differ between um, schools. I know, like, for instance, the Ivy League, because it's the Ivy League, they don't have curves because it's hard enough to get accepted by them. Um, So they're basically like, you made it, like, just stick it out with us. So they don't fail out um, anybody, but that's specific to the Ivy League. Everywhere else pretty much does. Well, it may be if you mispronounce Harvard and you you, instead of like having the soft R like Harvard, they might fail you (laughs) out. That might be the only thing that they do. So, okay, so you... 
so you just mentioned in your last response that you 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 perk up interest when you come to the area of law that you like most. So um, which was your area of law that uh, kind of caught your interest the most then? Yeah, so it ended up being criminal law. Um, I kind of, I got into criminal law, um, it, just the way like my my public policy career took me. I got really close with um, one of my professors, Professor Rachel Rayburn at IPFW. And she was just very intelligent. She ran classes um, more as a discussion. And she was um, a sociology major, a sociologist that um, focused on criminality. And so me and her kind of developed a relationship. She kind of took a liking to me. I um, was or I was her TA for a little bit, and then she helped me get a internship with um, federal probation in Fort Wayne. Um, so my senior year, I was um, an intern for the federal probation department um, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So it was the um, the Northern District of Indiana's uh, probation department. And um, I got to work firsthand in their office. I got to sit in one of the coolest experiences ever was because mixing my psychology um, experience with the um, criminal justice experience, I got to sit in on a, um, a psychiatry appointment with a um, client of ours who was um, on probation and then the probation officer. Um, and I just got to kind of sit and observe, which I thought was super cool. Um, and you kind of see, um, I, like our criminal justice system tends to dehumanize people that do bad things. And it was cool to be on the humanity side of the criminal justice system. So you are, so you're finishing up your um, so you you finished up and now you're, you're going to start preparing for the the bar exam. I said it right, the bar exam. Yeah. Uh, in 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 the spring. No, you said summer. Mm-hmm. Yes, in July. And then, but you just took a job clerking for uh, a, a firm. Uh, describe what that experience is like. Yeah. So um, right now I'm a law clerk at Prusak Law Group um, downtown Chicago, um, and they're located on Van Buren Street. And um, it's run by two um, female attorneys that uh, their names are Tracy Harkins and Shelby Prusak. And they're awesome. The, you know, you, you a lot of the job opportunities just come from like who you click with. And um, it just we had the interview and, you know, those interviews that just kind of keep going back and forth, like t- like p- like conversation ping pong. They uh, kind of took me under their wing and they're teaching me everything that they know. And um Basically, um, either at the end of this, um, they will either offer me a position with them or they're going to help me um, figure out another criminal defense path because of COVID and everything like that. They uh, they may be in a position to hire me, but we will see. But yeah, it's really cool. I get to go to court um, and sit at defense table with um, our clients and with the attorney and um, actually sit there. I actually gave my ment- I call her my mentor, Tracy, um, a question to ask during a cross examination in open court once, and she used it, which was a very cool experience that happened a few. Oh, wow, ago. wow! So I would imagine. So this is kind of my, you know, English teacher kind of question with this would be: How do you prepare to catch fallacious arguments 
when in your training like did they did you have to go over logical fallacies and try to like how how do you know when someone's making a bad argument because i imagine that has to be something that you uh have to confront and then dismiss how, how does that process work yeah so um it's a lot of skill and it's a lot of i mean that my psychology background kind of helped me personally a lot but they don't teach you that in law school directly um but it's a lot of get so I'm trying to understand your question. Like, so you're basically asking, how do you understand whether or not people are lying? Oh, not necessarily lying, but, but like, how do you know what? Because being a um, in in law, like, so how do you know? How do you sharpen your argument so you're not making a, a a fallacy in your argument? Or and how do you recognize if someone is making a fallacy in their argument? Like, are they? Are they, you, you hear like, is it an ad hominem, which they're like attacking you personally? Yeah. Or are they making like, you know, or are they making a bad analogy? I see what you're saying. How, 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 do, how do you prepare to make the sharpest, uh, how do they prepare you to make the sharpest arguments? Yeah. So, I, and we can talk in, in terms that in English, uh, professor, English teacher terms for sure. Cause the, when you said ad hominem, now I get what you're saying. So yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Like I think it was Socrates that said, um, the moment your opponent starts to attack your character, you know, that you've won the argument. I'm kind of, I might be butchering that quote. No, you're pretty, but that's, that's, that's exactly what he's, I would say is exactly, but you're in the right exact field of what he meant. And that's, a, that's a quote that just stuck with me. Um, especially in today's times too, with all of the, political divisiveness that's going on and all of the conversations that people are having just with family members and everything, you kind of, um, you kind of get trained to re recognize when somebody is arguing something that they know that they're talking about. Um, and a lot of it too is it comes back to just the way you, like I know, and, and this is unfortunate, it really is, but it's also just the nature of humanity too is a lot of people will win their arguments if they sound more confident, even if they're not telling the truth, which is not something that everybody wants to hear. And I, I know that that sounds so bad, but a lot of it is your delivery and yep. a lot of it is knowing what you're talking about. And so if the judge asks you a question, you have to be quick enough to know what you're like, so that you've done the work to know what you're, what you're talking about. Um, so yeah, like the, um, an example I could give, um, would be like, um, in court one, uh, one time I was observing court and one of the, um, attorneys was just kind of ruffling through paperwork, was saying, um, um, and like, didn't have their questions prepared. Um, and that all of a sudden, like that diminished their, their credibility with the court right off the bat. So yeah, a lot of it is preparation, to be honest. Tell me about how, what's the difference between preparing for the LSAT versus the bar? What, what's the, how do you like, how do you begin the preparation? Is it a daily discipline or is there a weekly checklist of things that you review and, and set up for, uh, for that? And then what does the test even look like? Yeah. So um, I, I honestly don't know what the test is going to look like for me personally, um, because with COVID and everything, I had friends that the bar is um, administered in July, usually every year um, for fall grads. And then um, you usually find out your results around October. Um, however, this year, 
Um, it was pushed due to COVID from July to August and then to September. And then finally, October, my friends that were a year above me got to sit for the bar, but they had to take it remotely. Um, so they were taking the bar exam in their homes and um, it was cut in half. So it was usually, um, traditionally, it was six hours for two, six hours a day for two days. Um, and then uh, now, or this past bar was um, only three hours a day for two days. So um, in terms of preparation, though, um, there is a lot of um, supplemental materials that people will use. I know Barbary is um, like a course that people will tend to take to prep them for the bar. And um, it's it really is a discipline. You, you graduate basically like they, the joke throughout the, uh, like law student community is like you graduate and you're all excited. And then like the next day you're studying for the bar. So it's like, yay, I graduated, but I'm just doing exactly what I've been doing the last three years for at least three more months. So yeah, it's like eight hours a day studying for, from you graduate in May and you take the bar in July. So you like people kind of go MIA when they're studying for the bar. I had friends that completely took off social media. I didn't hear from them until they were done taking it. Wow. Just just because they, they know that they can't even – when you pass the bar and you're you're going to go into uh, criminal law, just kind of like refresh my memory. I was like, what was it that was so compelling that made you fall into really wanting to get into criminal law? Yeah. Like I said, so I was working with um, – I was working uh, – directly with um, clients from um, the federal probation department. And these were people that were um, on probation for things like as gruelly as child sex crimes and murder. So, um, you know, and you see the, you get to see the humanity in people. Like, even though some humans are capable of some of the most grotesque things, like, I mean, like and I'm I named two of the worst ones, but there are people that do want to get better. And I just, from experience, um, in my education and experience firsthand in the probate in federal probation, I just saw that I saw a system that tended to be way too punitive um, rather than rehabilitative. And I saw an opportunity for me to kind of make change and wanted to. Um, and I saw the probation department that I was working in. They were directly trying to have a more rehabilitative um, approach to their work. And the I worked under um, his name was Bob Brubaker, and he was the federal probation, uh, the federal supervising uh, probation officer of Northern District of Indiana. And he implemented a lot of just awesome um, resources for our clients in probation that like he had classes that clients could come in and sit and learn how to interview for a job. And they would do, they would actively be um, helping them look for jobs. They would bring in um, community leaders and have them talk to some of our clients and say, Hey, like, look, like I was a gang member, but now I run this nonprofit that tries to get kids off the streets. And it was those kinds of things that I saw that I want, I saw the system moving towards going from a very punitive kind of traditional sense of crime and punishment to a more um, human understanding of why people commit crimes and how we can get them to stop. So if, if, if I, if, if there's a way that you could put your thumb on the scale to advise a policy that would make 
this better? What, where would you invest most of that from a legal standpoint? That's yeah, I would say, oh, there's so much. So like how, what would be the best way to kind of move towards the more rehabilitative? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I would say I, the structure of our prisons, to be honest. Um, I know that there's a movement going around, um, that like called they people call themselves, um, prison abolitionists. Um, and I have a lot of friends who would identify as that. I, um, personally, I mean, I don't like to put, this sounds so corny, but like, I don't like to put labels on myself, but I really don't because then you kind of pigeonhole yourself into one thing. And, Mm -hmm. um, but I just restructuring our prisons completely, um, rather than having social isolation from these people. I mean, a lot of these individuals got here because they were socially isolated So to socially isolate them even more so is just going to make that the situation even more worse than it already is. Um, so I mean, like for instance, I know of a program right now that, um, is it's called, uh, yoga for prisons in Chicago and a lot of, um, yoga and, um, yoga instructors in the community go to the prisons and they, um, run yoga classes with, um, the prisoners. So it's things like that kind of making prison less of a go in your room and think about what you've done kind of thing, more of an interacting with the community type of place. And um, like my my mentor who I've been, who have I mentioned a few times, Tracy Harkins, she has a t-shirt that she wears sometimes that says turn prisons into schools. Um, and I think just adapting a more of an educational approach to sentencing and to punishment would be um, definitely the most beneficial for society and the individual. Andy, I, I always like um, ending the interview with uh, some pearls of wisdom or advice that um, that you have learned over the years uh, for success. What would you tell current Wildcats? I would say that your biggest enemy is going to be fear. And whether you're scared of applying to that school, whether you're scared of applying for that job, if that's something that you want, go for it. Because, and I I feel like this is kind of corny advice, but it's just advice that has always helped me is that you're always, you, you will regret more not doing it than you will trying and maybe have failed. Um, so whatever your dream is, always go for it and figure out a way because there's always going to be a way. Um, and don't let fear get like, I know this is not my quote, but it's another one of my favorite quotes. Like don't let the fear of striking out, keep you from playing the game. That's so great. Andy, (laughs) this was a great interview. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Mr. Turnbaugh. It was great talking with you. And I love that you're doing this. This is such a great thing for West Chicago. And I love West Chicago. It's so near and dear to my heart. I had great professor, or I'm so used to saying professors, but uh-huh. you are a professor. So so many great teachers and community leaders at West Chicago. Um, Mr. Jennings, you, Cesar Gomez, like I still keep in contact with them. So go West Chicago, go Wildcats. And this is an awesome podcast. So Great on you for making this happen, Mr. Turnbull. Thank you so much. That is awesome. Thanks, Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music Podcasts and search We Go Vox.